This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. The word wrath, it's not the word that we use for human anger. This is a Greek word that refers to the secure connection between sin and misery. In other words, God, in the created scenario, put a cause and effect in the universe. That is, God says, don't do this because I made the universe this way. And if you violate this design, there is going to be an automatic negative result. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. My name's Aaron, and you're listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Today, we start the last message in Pastor Jeff's series about sexuality, identity, and Jesus. If you've missed any of this series, I highly recommend going back and listening to each one, and you can find it on all major podcast platforms by searching for Today with Jeff Fines. So let's start this message on sex and culture. And just a warning, there is some language and themes in this message that may not be suitable for younger listeners. Here's Pastor Jeff with the message, and if you can, read along in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 1. So 1, 18 through 31. Now remember, we're in a very difficult topic, and we've been approaching this from different angles, and I've said from day one, you can't just listen to one sermon, because if you only listen to one then that one sermon won't be in the context of the ones that preceded it. There's a coherency here. They're to be taken as a whole. We've looked at general passages of Scripture, and we've looked at it from 40,000-foot view. We looked at the whole idea of what marriage is. We talked about sanctity, singleness, and faithfulness in marriage. We talked about identity, where that comes from. But this week, this is the week, and here's why. We're going to go directly to Scripture in the sense that we're going to let Scripture verse by verse talk about this issue. That's why it's so important for you to go to Romans chapter 1. Now, as I do this, I want to remind you of something crucial, so crucial. There are four different ways that people look at Scripture. The first way is people look at it as a fixed anchor. That means it's an immovable authority. That means when you read it, you want to determine, okay, what is it saying? And whatever it says, you, your feeling is, I need to obey this. That when the Bible speaks, we obey. And we obey because everything God says is based on his wisdom and design, our design. The second way people look at the Bible, and this is Christ followers, they look at it instead of a fixed anchor, they look at it as a sea anchor. Now, if you know anything about sailing, rather than anchoring the boat to the seabed, the sea anchor increases the drag through the water and thus acts as a type of break. So it keeps you afloat and stable during storms. But it doesn't stop you, doesn't ground you. So the people who look at the Bible as a sea anchor kind of believe the Bible is a very good guide as we navigate the treacherous storms of life, but it's not authoritative. In other words, I choose which scriptures I believe are relevant to my life and which ones aren't, and I choose which ones are authoritative and which ones are just simply good advice. So in the second scenario, you're still the authority. You're still in charge of the scripture. The third way to look at the Bible is as a historical landmark. In other words, a good place to visit, but you don't really want to live there. So you think in your mind, the Bible should be respected for its spiritual insight in the past, but in no way would you feel restrained or governed by its precepts in the present or in the future. You think again, that it's a decent guide 
but it really is not relevant to your life today. And then there's the fourth, which is the way the secular world looks at the Bible, as a total waste of time. It's written by men and used as a power tool to make the rest of us submit. Now, the only real way to look at Scripture is the first way, as a fixed anchor, an immovable authority. When the Bible speaks, you do your best to figure out what the Bible says and what it means, and then you live your life accordingly. When the Bible speaks, you obey, full stop, because you know that it's based on the wisdom of God and how you're designed. That's why Paul told the young preacher Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scriptures God breathed. It all comes from the mouth of God. It all originates from God. Scripture is the word graphe, that which is written. Spoken, written, all comes from God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the servant of God, which is all of us, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, unfortunately, this is important to do this, relativism has crept into the church today, widespread, so that now culture determines the truth of Scripture rather than Scripture determining the truth of culture. You with me? So now culture looks at Scripture and says, this should be the truth, instead of Scripture looking at culture in our lives and saying, this is the truth your life should conform. So it's not a new thing, moral, uh, moral relativism, because back in Genesis, this is exactly what Satan employed when he asked Eve the question, did God really say that? And he's been using that line ever since. Did God really say these things? Now, I know that almost every day we hear stories about the transgender community, gay, lesbian rights, transgender rights, LBGTQ rights, struggles, bigotry, legislation. We hear that all the time. This is a great time to stop. Stop all the emotions, all the feelings, all the rhetoric and just say, okay, what does the Bible say? This is a good time to do this. And, this, and we're going to the book of Romans, the book that the book that is the theology of the New Testament. You got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the history. But Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, explains to us culture. And here, I'm going to jump right in. You ready? Okay. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Paul, after he gives us the good news of the gospel, that he is not ashamed of the gospel in verse 16, and that in it, a righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith. So you can't be rightfully accepted before God based on your own merit. You must be given grace. So we are saved by grace through faith in what Christ did on the cross. That's the good news. Then immediately he says it's a good thing, and here's why. Because the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, the word wrath... It's not the word that we use for human anger. It's not personal revenge, like when somebody does something to you and you say, I'm going to get them. This is a Greek word that refers to the secure connection between sin and misery. In other words, God, in the created scenario, put a cause and effect in the universe. That is, God says, don't do this because I made the universe this way. And if you violate this design there is going to be an automatic negative result. In other words, God doesn't set up in heaven when you violate design and say, oh, I gotta figure out a way to get you. No, the way is already figured out. You violated design, this is going to happen. There are two words in the Bible for wrath. One is orge. Orge means the settled release of God's anger. Little by little, but orge is always 
there with the motivation of repentance. So the reason it's there is so that you will wake up and repent of the way you're going. That's orge. The other word for wrath is thumos. It's a, it's a Greek word primarily used in the book of Revelation. And thumos is about a volcano that, that presses down, presses down, and then one day erupts. And that's why thumos is always associated with the parousia, or the second coming of Christ. In other words, God gives you grace and more grace and more grace and more mercy, but one day the time for grace and mercy is completed, and now it's time for judgment. But the word orge is the word used in Romans 1.18. So the settled wrath of God that is part and partial to the cause and effect of his created universe, the secure connection between sin and misery is unleashed. Now notice something. When does the wrath come and why? This kind of wrath comes because men suppress. This is a Greek word that means to push down. And every time it tries to rise up, you push it down again. What does mankind suppress? The truth. This is a Greek word that refers to the natural world and its relationship to humanity and its relationship to God. So there is a self-evident, there is a very clear truth about the existence of God and about our relationship to him, but men suppress it. They push it down. Every time it comes back, every time you know that it's true, every time there's conviction, what do we do? We push it back down. How? The Bible says through wickedness. Again, this is a word that means the violation of God's design. Now notice, we're told that wickedness, our wickedness suppresses, pushes down God's, God's truth. So put together, verse 18, Paul is trying to say this. The longer you ignore the truth, the more difficult it becomes to see. You do the wrong thing long enough, it will actually start to seem acceptable to you. He says, verse 19, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain. This Greek word refers to both outside and inside knowledge. Inside knowledge is the moral law that we all seem to have. It's an innate understanding of right and wrong. That you know it's wrong to kill and to steal and to rape. You know those things are wrong. Now, how, how, why do you know those things are wrong? Atheistic evolution will never create a moral ethic. It's about survival of the fittest. It's not about morality. You know it because you've been created in the image of God and you have an innate sense of what is right and what is wrong. But you also have an understanding on the outside world, the created order, the fine-tuning of the universe, the vastness of the galaxies, the complexity of the universe with all its beauty and wonder. You're supposed to be able to look out the window, walk out your front door and say, wow, there must be a God. So what may be known about God is plain, but we continue to suppress it, to push it down. And the reason we do that is because we don't like the conviction that God exists and we are to follow and to seek him, even though God tells us that the best life you could possibly live is by seeking God. And then we go to verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, all right, there are three Greek concepts here. God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature, those three have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. The first one, God's invisible qualities. What is that? The invisible qualities are God of God are, it means that you're supposed to look at the created world, the universe, going back to the internal and the external proof of God, and you're supposed to look at the created order and everything in existence and, and come to the conclusion that the only plausible explanation for what I am looking at with my eyes 
is a first cause, someone in charge and that has caused all of this to happen. And as a result, in seeing the eternal or invisible qualities, you now notice the divine nature. This is a beautiful word that refers to self-existence. Remember you've heard me say, when somebody says, how do you define God? I will say, God is the only entity who doesn't depend on anything outside of himself for his existence. He is self-existing. If he depended on something outside of himself to exist, then that person he depended on would be God. God is self-existing. And so his divine nature, the fact that he is self-existing, that he is the first cause, and also then his eternal power. What does that mean? Well, if you are self-existing, it means you have no beginning or no end. Nobody made you, so somebody can't unmake you. So the Bible tells us in verse 20 that we're supposed to know from the creation of the world God's invisible qualities, his creative genius, his eternal power that he is never ending, alpha and omega, the beginning and the end, and his divine nature, the first cause, he's self-existing, are all evident so that all these things are so evident that there's no excuse for not seeking God. Now remember, we're in the book of Romans. This is the apostle Paul. This is theology of our faith. Uh, you know, I had a father that was not well-educated. He was one of nine brothers and sisters, but he wanted a family. He was actually the youngest of the family. And my father worked really hard and he sacrificed a lot and he provided for his four sons and his wife. And he loved us and he defended us and he fed us and he housed us in a, in a real way. My father did whatever he could to provide a chance at life. Now, the natural response of my father to, toward my father, should it not be love and appreciation and praise and a, a certain sense of adoration? Well, if it's that kind of response to my earthly father, how much more then should our response be to the God who breathes life into us? Now, this is where the Apostle Paul transitions because Paul says, since man does not seek God, there is a cause and effect and he reveals to us in the rest of Romans 1, 18 through 31, that there are four stages, four stages that humanity goes through in every culture. I'm not sure in every generation, but four stages that leads them to their end. The first stage is this. The first thing that happens when you do not seek and pursue and admit and acknowledge God is that you become futile in your thinking. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, what does it mean to have thinking that is futile? The Greek word is metaotis. The word means that you're going to try to achieve an objective, but the way you're going about it won't work. You want to achieve something, but you're going about it in a way that's futile. It's not going to give you or produce the preferred result or ramification. So in this context, we're told that once you stop pursuing, seeking, and worshiping God, the heart of man wants to worship, so he starts pursuing other things in hopes they will deliver what only God can deliver. So to reject God is to reject the greatest reality in the universe. Now, I could go on here, but let's, let's keep it for a moment within our culture. Think about it. We want love, acceptance, significance, security, hope, the same thing that every generation's wanted, our generation does what, though? If we're honest, we pursue that with money. Money is our treasure. If I can get enough money in the bank, 
If I can serve money, worship money, get more of it, then I'll have hope and security and my life will matter. Or we turn to power. For some of us, if I can gain that position, if I can get enough likes on Facebook or whatever it is you use now, I stay off of it. But whatever it is you use, if I can get enough followers, if I can, then my life will have meaning and significance. Power. That hasn't changed. The form has just changed. But the ultimate in our generation is sex. I'm telling you, it's the pinnacle of our lives. It's everywhere. We think if we're involved in some kind of sexual encounter, relationship, that it will give us meaning. The Bible tells us if you go down this road, there is a built-in wrath or judgment. If you stop pursuing God above and beyond all these other things and you try to get what you're ultimately looking for for these other things, then the natural result that God implemented into the created order is your foolish hearts become darkened. The farther you go down this road, the darker your understanding becomes, which means there will be locked gates at every juncture. But if you keep breaking down the barriers, you end up in a place where you have rationalized for so long, you not only cannot see the truth, you think a lie is the truth and a truth is a lie. Verse 22, the second phase. They now, because their foolish hearts are darkened, they exchange the truth of God for a lie. Verse 22, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Now, again, there's a play on words here that you and I don't see. The word wise is sophos, from which we get our word sophomore, okay? And it, the original word means insight and understanding into the way the world is. Again, Paul's using a different word, same meaning that we found up in verse 18. But he said, instead of becoming wise and understanding the way things are designed, the way you're meant to function and operate, you've become fools. And he doesn't use moros, the Greek word from which we get our word moron, which means you know the truth, but you just refuse to live it. He uses the Greek word asunitas, from which we get our English word asinine, which means, which means you're actually unintelligent and stupid. You've actually become so darkened in your understanding that you've actually become ignorant. Now, let's think about this for a moment. Do you ever watch the news or watch television and somebody says something, how often, and you sit back and think, really? You think that's the way it is? You never do that? No, just every day. When you hear our politicians talk, don't you think, can you, didn't you go to Harvard? Can you be that imbecilic about the way life works? You think by doing that, you're gonna achieve this? Of course you do, because that's part and partial to the world in which we live. Remember what G.K. Chesterton said? We've educated ourselves into imbecility. Now, the question is, how did we become so foolish? Paul says, because we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images. So as soon as you start glorifying and you're captivated by something else other than God, you're gonna be captivated by something. So Paul says the natural digression is to be captivated by images. An image is a person or a thing that is revered or idolized over and above God. So when you attempt to extract something from anything that only God can deliver, you actually, it's not just that you are futile in your thinking. It's not just that you are dissatisfied. It's not just that you suffer physical, mental, emotional uh, debilitation. It's also that your, your thinking becomes skewed. 
And so when we pursue, nothing wrong with money, but if it's your God, you'll become ignorant. Nothing wrong with sex, but if it's your God, you'll, you'll become ignorant. And your thinking's futile. You're detached from ultimate knowledge. And you exchange the glory of God for things that can never deliver what they promise, nor what you're actually looking for. So rather than being captivated by God, the creator, we're captivated by the glory of things. I like to call it like this. I like to, I like to say we are enamored in America with the screen, the team, and the dream. Here's what drives us. The screen, man, cell phone, iPad, whatever it is. It, you, if you look back and think about how much time you spend on that, for some reason, suddenly it's got you. And it's going to make you stupid. That's, another, that's a good reason to make sure you limit the time of your children on the screen. Second, then it's the team. If you don't attach yourself to that, we worship super. We, think about the money that we give athletes and the money we give teachers and care workers. It's amazing because they're our gods. We never admit it, but they're the gladiators. They're modern-day gladiators. And so we're addicted to them. Some people's demeanor goes up and down based on their team losing or winning. In New Zealand, which is a secular country that absolutely worships the all-blacks, I always knew that church attendance was going to be really good when they lost and really bad when they won. And I was right. When they lost, it's like, oh, maybe we should search for something else. But when they won, we don't need God. It's amazing. And then the dream. All of us have a dream that we think if we get there, whatever it is, marriage, uh, a business endeavor, a sport, if we can just get to the pinnacle of whatever it is, then we'll have meaning and significance in life. And God says, if you fall for this, you're going to be ignorant. And a lot of ramifications and then Paul says, but after culture does this, after their foolish hearts become darkened, after they attach themselves to some symbol rather than the God, then third, God gives them over. Now, here's where it gets very, very brutal here. God gives them over to the depravity to degrade their bodies with one another. So the next stage of cultural disintegration is sexual impurity on a large scale. Okay, we're not talking about homosexuality, lesbian. We're just talking about sexual impurity. That's the third stage, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. So Paul says basically this. Once you don't worship God, you'll start worshiping things. And once you're tired of worshiping things, you'll start worshiping each other. And the Bible says God gave them over. The Greek word is paradidomi, which means he... Beautiful etymology here. It means that God lowers his hand. What does that mean? Well, in culture, God will say, no, I'm not letting you go any farther. No farther, stop that. But there comes a time when you seem so intent, go ahead. But the whole point of God is so that you would repent. He will leave you alone to see what life is like without him in hopes, though, the motivation of God is repentance before it's too late so that you can be saved for eternity and live with God, which is what he ultimately wants for you. He says, sinful desires, which means that not all desires are pure and legitimate. If I can describe this word just quickly. So according to scripture, according to this simple word, epithumia, all of us have desires. God, if he gives us desires and they're God-given, I mean, we've already shown that not all desires are pure but the Bible says God also gives us legitimate desires. If we fill those desires, legitimate de desires, legitimately, oh man, over a lifetime, they become that more fulfilling and enjoyable. But if we take a legitimate desire, 
and fulfill it by illegitimate means, it creates more illegitimate desires and more death. And then he says the third phase of when that happens to culture, you start degrading your bodies with one another. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. Rather than trust the wisdom of God, chastity and singleness, faithfulness and marriage, we trust our own wisdom and violate God's precepts. We dishonor our own bodies by using them in a way they were never designed. And the Bible simply tells us when we do that, we're no longer worshiping God, we're worshiping the creature. We give ultimate worth to sex with each other rather than intimacy with God. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Fines wherever you listen to podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.